I could probably tell you, in chronological order, every time in my life I've been impolite about money. Every instance sticks with me like a branding iron. There was the time at age seven, during my parents' divorce, when I asked my dad to buy me colored pencils. And when he told me to ask my mom, I said mom told me he made more money than she did. He got really mad at that, and I learned that comparing my parents' incomes was something I shouldn't do. Then there was the time in elementary school when a classmate who learned that my mother was a lawyer told me that I was rich. But when I asked my mom if we were rich, she said no. I learned that people will assume things about how much money you have based on what you do for work. Then there was a time near the end of college when my then-boyfriend and I visited some friends who had recently graduated and bought a house. Really grown-up stuff. They showed us their new dining table. And, being a college student who was used to bragging about the free furniture I scored on the side of the road, I asked them how much it cost. My boyfriend looked at me horrified and told me not to ask questions like that. That was when I learned that once you're a grown-up, you have to stop talking about money. Then there was the time that I got my first full-time office job. When they made their salary offer, I did the thing that I had always done with big decisions up until that point. I put the number on Facebook and I asked my friends if I should take the job. Immediately, I got a DM from an older, wiser friend letting me know that companies usually don't take kindly to people making their salaries public. So I took it down. That was when I learned that how much money you make is a secret, even if it's a secret you don't care about keeping. But soon, I started to figure out that sharing those secrets is a powerful, subversive act. When a coworker and I told each other how much we each made, we were both in a better position to negotiate for more. When my friends and I talk about our salary offers, we save each other from being underpaid for our skills. And when I started actually talking to my parents about money, things like how they bought their house and why we weren't actually rich when I was in elementary school, I became better prepared to do the right things with my own money. So if talking about money is so good for us, why is it still such a taboo? That's what we're going to find out today. The answer lies in a lot of those lessons I learned growing up, and in the power I found when I started ignoring them as an adult. I'm Ashley Hamer, and this is Taboo Science, the podcast that answers the questions you're not allowed to ask.
guest today is a leader in a field that you probably haven't heard of. I certainly hadn't. Ted Klontz, PhD, is a founder of the Financial Psychology Institute. He teaches financial psychology at the Creighton Business School, and he also has an international private practice of his own. And what financial psychology does is pretty simple. Here's what you know you should do with money. Here's what you actually do with money. And financial psychology helps close the gap. And having a gap between what you should do and what you do do is really normal. According to Dr. Klontz, it's actually how we evolved. Second thing that it does is it uh, tries to find ways to overcome the natural, born into most of us, DNA, to do the exact wrong thing with money in today's world. Historically, it was right on. That's why we're here. But the world has changed in the last maybe especially 500 years and maybe up to 4,000 years. Today, we call them savers. Back then, they would be sanctioned, perhaps even to the point of death, for keeping more than their share and for not giving the people who needed it most first. Those were our ancestors, right? And so the predominant DNA structure for all of us is to not save, to not invest, to live for today, to follow the herd, all, all those things which would kill us today or, or do kill us in today's financial reality, but they're a natural process. And so it's like, how do we, how do we brain hack our natural tendency not to do those things? So what, what was harmful about saving back in our history? Well, because it meant you were hoarding. <clears throat> and there are always people who had less, you know, the older people. And in some of the cultures I interact with today, the elders are fed first always. Then the young people are fed first, and then the adults get what's left, right? That's how, that's how you and I got to be sitting here. Our ancestors did that over and over and over again. And it was considered really immoral, first of all, to feed yourself. And second of all, to keep more than you needed while other people didn't have enough. The whole culture would have collapsed, right? So there were people who were inclined to do that, but they, they were eliminated from the gene pool. I mean, I'm going to say it sounds actually like a pretty good setup, right? Like we're giving people well, who yeah. need uh, things. Of course, you can politicize it and call, oh, he's talking communism. He's talking socialism. It's like, well, I'm sorry. That's our ancestral, <laughs> that's our ancestral heritage that uh, we, are, we are not born to hoard. We're just not. We're not born to save, right? And until 100 years ago, we didn't have to save. Number one, we didn't live long enough. And number two, a community or our family would care for us until we died. So, you know, there, there was no need for saving. And, and, you know, in the last 50 years or so, it's like, okay, now we have to do things that we are not inclined to do. Uh, what what people who talk to us just say, well, just do it. It's like, well, I don't care how many times I bounce a basketball, I'm never going to be six foot 10. I mean, it's just not in my nature. So the question is, in financial psychology is how do we, first of all, what is human nature around money and other things? And then if we need to modify our relationship with that thing, how do we do it? And that's what the field of financial psychology is. So Let's imagine that you're not inclined to save, that you want to, and you should, but you just don't, right? So what can we do about that uh, to help you 
live in today's world, which is a new phenomenon for human beings. We, we haven't ever, ever, ever been totally reliable on taking care of ourselves. It's never happened until now. Hunter-gatherer societies rely on the land to provide what they need. That means that sometimes they have a lot and sometimes they don't have much at all. If an individual has more food than they need, it's in their best interest to share what they have since they could find themselves without anything when that food runs out. Scientists will often study contemporary hunter-gatherer societies to see how ancient hunter-gatherer societies may have worked. And a 2016 study of these types of societies in the Philippines and the Congo found that there's a hierarchy to how this food sharing happens. The first people they share with are their immediate family, usually five to six individuals. The next group is a cluster of three to four closely related households. Extended family, you might say. The third group is the wider camp. So not only did our ancestors probably share what they had, they probably did it in a deliberate and organized way. Okay, so we're not really programmed to operate in a modern economy in the first place. So from that logic, it kind of makes sense that we're skittish when it comes to talking about money. And that's one reason for the taboos around it. Number one, we don't know how to talk about it. And we don't want people getting too far into the whole money thing because, you know, part of what we'll discover is how we're manipulated by the people who do understand how our brain works, which are the people who sell us things, right? Some of the best psychologists in the world, they work for the casinos, right? It's like, how can we take the natural tendencies of human beings and use it to our advantage, right? And if you look very far into the topic of money, then you're going to start discovering those ways in which we're manipulated. And once we know we're manipulated, it's like watching a magician, right? You know that he's tricking you, but when you're a little kid, you don't know they're tricking you, right? And sometimes some magicians even trick the adults. They're so good. It's like, well, there's just no way that they can do that, right? It must be something mystical and magical. And so the, the power structure has a big investment in us not understanding too much about our own behavior. The second thing is uh, it's like sex, right? The parents don't know how to talk about that, then they're not going to talk about it. No, it's ask your dad, ask your mom, or leave it to the teachers who we don't want to talk about that, right? And here's the weird thing. Usually, when there's a subject your parents feel weird about explaining to you and that leads strangers to blush when you mention it, that sends the message that there's something wrong with it. These are the kinds of reactions you get from talking about sex, like Dr. Klontz mentioned, or talking about drugs or asking where our meat comes from or, you know, just browse the episode list. It's all there. And that wrongness leads to shame. My experience has been that there's more shame for people, the average person, around their behavior, their personal relationship with money than anything else I've ever worked with them around, whether it's sexual addiction you know, alcohol addiction, infidelity, whatever, that they, they will talk much more about that much easier than they will about their money. I get this. It took me years to even start budgeting because it was physically painful to sit down and face how I was spending my money. It's not like I had maxed out my credit cards or gone into bankruptcy or anything tangible that told me that my spending was wrong. It was just an assumption, a feeling. 
I sometimes spend money on frivolous things like restaurant meals and funny t-shirts I see on Twitter, and therefore I am a bad person who is bad with money. If this sounds familiar to you, I've got a pro tip. Once I started budgeting and could actually see where my money was going, I felt way better about it. Notice that I didn't say I changed where my money was going. Just the act of seeing it eased my mind a lot. Once that shame was gone, it was a lot easier to make the changes that I needed to make. Primarily, it's the secrets we keep about them. It's the secret thoughts we have. It's the things we do that nobody knows about, right? It's the things that we do that are different than what we say we're going to do. We all have our own unique behaviors. Like, So let's imagine you and I were uh, all financially healthy, and I'd say, so what are your secrets around money? What do you do that nobody knows about with your money? What are the secret thoughts that you have about it, right? And then I'll tell you mine. And it's like when you keep a secret, then there's some, I'm keeping a secret because if people really know, then they wouldn't like me, right? And we just make all that up. We just make it all up. So sometimes when I have groups of people together, and, you know, it's like that's one of our things. Like, so share your secrets about money, one secret. And and people didn't know that other people did the same thing, right? So our rules about what's, our rules about it not being polite to talk about money is sort of the thing that's causing the shame? Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. So if, if I were physically abused and I feel shameful about it because somehow I think it's my responsibility, so I keep it a secret because I, somehow I feel like I'm responsible for whatever condition I'm in or whatever it is. But if we sit in a circle and other people are talking about the ways in which there's like, well, okay. I'm, I'm normal. We're all normal around money, but money is an abnormal condition, right? So we all attach ourselves to it. And, and basically, our relationship with money is built uh, mimicking what we saw growing up or in opposition to what we saw growing up. It's the same coin. It's the exact opposite. Um, I'm never going to love anyone again because love hurts. It's like, well, okay, that's a choice. But that, that's, not the only, that's not the only option, right? And we failed at it. We make commitments to ourselves. And this is where some of the guilt comes from and the shame. And, and then we don't, keep, we don't keep the promises that we make to ourselves. I'm going to save this. I just got $100. I'm going to put 90 of it in my savings. And then we don't do it. It's like, there must be something wrong with me. It's like, well, no, you're, you're just a human being. And now there are things we can do to help you save that $90, but you're going to need help doing it. So the secrets we keep, the fact that it's a taboo subject, the fact that it seems like everybody else is doing better with it than we are, because nobody talks about the struggle. Now, there's a lot of talk about money as if it's an it, right? But it's like, well, how about your personal relationship with it? Right? And it's like, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay, so where does that personal relationship with money come from? Why did I believe that spending money on fun things made me a bad person? According to Dr. Klontz, the answer is your family. I mean, who else? I got into all this really because I, my, my own really inefficient, ineffective, and dangerous financial behaviors that finally got to me one day. You know, the only common ingredient in all these things is me. So what, what is it? 
And I know I'm not stupid. I know I'm not crazy. What kinds of thoughts that I don't know about might be propelling my behavior? Because our behaviors are only an extension of our thoughts. That's all they are. Now, we can go, well, that, you know, it's like, you just don't know what the thoughts are. We have three to 400 beliefs about money operating in our head all the time. And if we know five of them, you know, that, that means we're pretty literate around our relationship with money. So as I was discovering this, I, was, I asked a group of people at a table, how do you feel okay about having more than you actually need when other people don't have enough? And my wife kicked me under the table, like really hard. And afterwards, I said, why did you kick me? And she said, well, it's impolite to ask people how much money they make. It's like, that's, <laughs> that's not what I said. She goes, oh, my God, that's absolutely true. In my family, um, and then she went on to say that when she asked her father how much money he made, he said, enough. And she got the message, you know, you don't talk about that. Most of our beliefs about money, we encapsulate by the time we're seven years old. Oh, that's how money works. Okay, I got it. Um, let's say that you grew up in a family that didn't work very well, and as a woman, you go, okay, I can't really trust men to take care of me, right? So your life trajectory is now set. Whatever is going to happen, you are not going to be dependent on a male or a partner to take care of you financially. You might have had that experience, and you would say to yourself, I need someone to take care of me financially. Both of those messages can come out of the same incident, but it, it's uniquely yours. And since it's a taboo, you never speak it out loud, so adult an adult could not disabuse you of like, like, well, hang on. No, that's, those are not the only two choices, right? And there's a place in between, which as parents, we do around other things, right? And, and kids learn very early that you don't talk about money, right? And, and they get it. It's like you don't talk about religion, if, you know, like, where do we go when we die? And it's like, uh, you're only three years old. You shouldn't be asking that question. Well, okay, they, they won't ask that question again, <laughs> right? It sounds like a lot of these threads are kind of intertwined, right? Like the shame around money, the inability to talk about it, it, it gets passed down and everybody continues to feel that way. Is, why is it impolite to talk about money in the first place? Well, first of all, there's a strong religious piece of that, right? In the Christian world, one of the things is uh, God takes care of the sparrows. So why should you worry about any of this? Right? The verse he's talking about is Matthew 6.26. And it goes something like, Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Basically, like, look at these unemployed, good-for-nothing sparrows. If God takes care of them, you certainly don't have to worry about whether God will take care of you. Chill out. Don't worry about money so much. Now, what they don't tell you is sparrows live three years, right? <laughs> I mean, they don't tell you that part. I'm, I'm being a little bit uh, sarcastic there. But the people who, quote, worry about money, there's something wrong with them. They're not trusting karma. I, I, I lived for about 50 years living in a world that I call Ted's Twisted Law of Karma around money. If you do the right thing for the right reason, for the right people, and you sacrifice yourself, someday the check is going to come saying, well done, right? Well, that's twisted. 
but that's what essentially I was taught. Uh, worry about the things and the money will follow. Well, you know, that is true for some people, but for most people, it is not. You know, I lived in a little village west of here um, where a lot of really good people, I mean, good people who live good lives and they sacrifice and sacrifice and they didn't have enough fuel to heat their homes in the wintertime. And now they're 70, 80 years old. It's like, oops. No, but, but they bought in to that concept. And it's these beliefs, or money scripts, as Dr. Klontz calls them, that really govern your relationship to money, not how much you have or how much you know about it. These beliefs can lead to what financial psychologists call disordered money behaviors, which includes things you've probably heard of, like gambling addictions and hoarding disorders, but also more subtle and common behaviors. What are some of the most common beliefs and scripts that people have about money that, that is harming them? Well, that money can do more than it actually can. We call that money worship. Like what Like what do we believe it can do that it can't? Well, uh, we all have a need to belong, right? We all have a need for autonomy. We all have a need for safety, self-expression, purpose, and connection. And so let's find a way to give you a sense of that. These are the genes that are back, right? It's like, do you want to be a part of the in crowd or do you want to be left out? Oh, I'm just going to be an outlaw. Well, they they have clothing for sale to outlaws, right? (laughs) It's like, um, I'm rejecting that. I'm just going to stay with my old style. But, I mean, we, they, they sell that stuff too, right? Not just the new stuff. Money avoidance, which is somehow either I feel incompetent or there's something wrong with focusing on money. So I don't even open my letters or statements that I get or whatever it is. There's financial enablement, which means in order... To show, if you're my daughter, to show you that I love you, I will, I will make a world that is not real financially for you by giving you money from time to time. It's also a way for me to keep you close here. If I have no confidence in my just being your father, that uh, you would want to have anything to do with me, it's really a good way to keep you close. And the more money people have, the more likely that is to happen. Typically, the parents will come talk to me about that, saying our kids got a problem. I said, well, not really. The world that you have built for them, they're living in it. Well, they think I'm the bank. Well, you are. You have to. You, know, you, you, you give loans. They never have to pay it back. You, know, you, you just wish they would stop asking, like, who's, who's going to do that, <laughs> right? Um, and, and then there's the financially dependent, which is the receiver of the financial aid, right? Like, they literally can't make it on their own, don't believe they can make it on their own, and that they always need, you know, and, and they work that part too, right? So how can I be a multimillionaire? And my daughter says, hey, look, I, I have no place to live. And I go, well, find a place to live. Sorry about that. Like, who's going to do that? Right. Some people, but you know, not the average person. You know, because we love our kids, right? And we want the best for them. So those are basically the four ways we hurt ourselves. And like I said, you can know what to do, but if your beliefs and emotions aren't in it, you're not going to do it. Financial literacy is great, except it, t- it affects the neocortex. There's a 10%, less than 10% effect on behavior. So even if you know 
the right thing to do. It's yeah. And now that you know the right thing to do and don't do it, you feel even more shame. Yeah. That's my problem uh, with the people who, you know, say, Hey, come to the seminar. You can be rich. It's like, great. Boom, 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 boom. By the third day, it's gone. And now you feel even worse because you, uh, one guy I know went to 23 seminars by one of the world's most famous promoters of, you know, the, the way. Statistically, it's a, a, a three to six percent of the audience is affected in a positive way by those circumstances. And really, they were ready for the information. The only thing missing was the information. The internal fire had already been lit. What happens is uh, if, if a guy or a woman is really good, they can inspire me. They get me all fired up, right? But it's, it's their fire that I'm internalizing, and it doesn't catch fire in here. And what I say is the only way we're going to change is if we catch on fire internally. So what financial psychology attempts to do is to light that fire. Because once that fire is lit, you're sitting where you're sitting today because one day you got something that went, mm, I want to do that. And nothing stopped you. Nothing. It wasn't because doors closed. It was like you forced them open, went over, under, around, whatever. You just made it happen because you couldn't not make it happen. And that's where true change comes from, is the fire. And financial psychology is really designed. How do we help you put a match to that part of you that's already just waiting to explode, right? And, and then how can we help you feed that fire? What are the ways that we can help you tend that fire? But it's your fire, not my fire. A guy called me in 23 uh, of these workshops in three years, this one guy, right? And he goes, there's something really wrong with me. And I said, no, it's his fire, not yours. It's his fire, not yours. Now, that person also says, and if you're not doing this, you're a loser, right? So uh, that's, that's where the shame comes from. Uh, we, we know better, but we can't do better. But we have a relationship with money the same way we have a relationship with food and you know, the environment. And, and, and it's like, let's take a look at the relationship and see and what the beliefs are that would cause the relationship to be the way it is. Yeah. And a very simple question with, I'm sure, a very complicated answer, but how do you do that? How do you find your internal fire? All right. So we just completed a study, Capital One, right? Five different cities, like a, a double blind, random. I mean, it's just like the gold standard in studies. Five different cities, three different groups. Three got no information whatsoever. This is about increase in savings rate. Like nothing happened. Second group got an hour lecture on how they should save. The importance of saving and investing. And the whole thing is about 401ks. And because of that lecture, 23%, there was a 23% increase in that group. Right? Not bad. Third group. Same hour, I mean, they got one hour, we said build a storyboard, a vision board of what your future would look like if it turns out the way you would like it. Pictures, sounds, smells, sensory system. The return savings rate was 76%. Triple, triple, just by visualizing. And that's with no education? You know, education, we already know. You know, we already know, really. 
Uh, it isn't that we don't know that we should eat less and eat better. We, we know that. We just don't, right? And we know what to do. We should spend less than we earn. We should invest in the future. We should give some away. We, we know there's nothing new, right? But that's an intellectual body of knowledge. Now, some people don't know, and they go, God, oh, never thought it, and they do it. Um, but it's really that the decision-making part of the brain doesn't do English, French, German, Swahili. It just, it's not affected by that. It is affected by the sensory system. So smell is the most powerful, things I see, things I hear. And interesting enough, if I imagine my cabin in the Black Hills of South Dakota, where you don't see anybody for three days if you don't want to, the part of my brain lights up as if I'm already there. And I, quote, remind myself of why I'm doing what I'm doing, what my motivation is. I see the picture of the log cabin on my refrigerator every time I open it. That part of the brain is reminded, right? And it catches on fire again about that. This technique where you get all the senses involved in your goals is sometimes called functional imagery training, and it's used for more than just financial goals. A 2019 study in the International Journal of Obesity had people imagine what losing weight would enable them to do that they couldn't do now, and not only in the abstract, but how that experience would look, sound, and even smell. After six months, the people who used the functional imagery to picture their goals lost more than four times as much weight as the control group. This stuff seems to work. So it, it sounds like parents have a really big impact on our beliefs about money. Like, what are ways that they can do the right thing with their kids? I can talk about it. You know, I can, I can give you an example of probably the most profound experience I've ever had. I, the, the one, one career I had was that of a teacher. And before I became a full-fledged teacher, I was a substitute teacher. And I was like, um, I was substituting for kindergarten, right? And I ended up in um, high school and college, right? But you know, I was trying to make a little extra cash, right? And <laughs> about the fourth day, it was a Friday, um, this little kid comes to me and said, could you come to my house for dinner tomorrow night? And I'm thinking, well, that's really nice, but I don't think so. I think your parents, no, no, my parents asked me, you know, it's like, so I said, well, let me talk to them. And you know, so I called me, well, yeah. Da, da. And so I show up and um, I knock on the door and the door opens and, oh, there he is, right? And he escorts me in and sits down and, and there's another teacher there with his sister, right? So. They both invited their favorite teacher. Oh. It's just, just the four of us. And then they got up and they came back and they introduced their parents, right? To, to us. And we had hot dogs and baked beans. I mean, kids at the menu. And so I, I was really curious about that. It's like, oh, yeah, uh, they're, they're involved in every major. Every, each of us get a weekend a month. We get to invite our favorite people. So mom, dad, sister, brother, right? And um, they went on to talk about how they make financial decisions. Yeah, the car we bought, it's a, and this is money and this is what we can do. So to be open with the kids about that, you know, it's like, this is money, this is what we do with it. And to have made their own peace with their own financial relationships, I, I guess I would say. That's the best thing we can do. One thing I know that uh, my daughter did, which I endorse, 
was as early as money began to appear in their life, she said, here's what we're going to do. You're going to save some of it. You're going to give some of it away, and you're going to keep some of it to spend if you want to. And that's from the time that they were old enough to, that's what they do. And we're not just going to give it to a cause. We're going to go around the neighborhood and find places that need money. And so she literally took them to food kitchens, right? And they got to choose them at age four, five, six years old. And um, she said, suggested that maybe they could volunteer. So they volunteered, so they helped make sandwiches, right? And, and that's, you know, that's a pretty powerful lesson uh, that you save some, you give some away, and you get to spend the rest if you want to. My 15-year-old granddaughter, for Christmas last year, the only thing she wanted was a, her own 401k. Wow. So she's really into saving, right? And because she wants to be a millionaire. And that's, that's, that's one way you can do that. But for those of us who are already adults with our own weird beliefs and taboos around money, how are you supposed to feel more comfortable around it? Dr. Klotz has a few tips. Understand it's a relationship, right? Nothing good about it, nothing bad. Uh, it's just a relationship. And like any relationship, uh, it's important to begin to understand the dynamics of it. So to start that way. The second thing is to understand that there's nothing wrong with them, that they're just operating on the basis of what they know and what they've been told and what they've made up about. And the third thing is to find a way or find some people to begin exploring what it is exactly that you do believe about money. There's a, a number of books, uh, we've written many of them, where people can begin to explore you know, what it is that they believe. And I think the last thing would be to understand that your behavior around money makes perfect sense based on what you believe. So you take the behavior and go, what kind of belief would make this a logical? It's like, well, you know, maybe I've got a problem with retirement. That's what I'm not doing. What do I think retirement is? And, and that's when we begin to discover the sort of the crazy thinking that we have around money that causes us to feel like we're crazy. Thanks for listening. Taboo Science is written and produced by me, Ashley Hamer. The theme was by Danny Lopatka of DLC Music. Big thanks to Ted Klontz, PhD. You can learn all about the Financial Psychology Institute and find a financial psychologist of your own at financialpsychologyinstitute.com. And you can also learn more about Dr. Klontz and his workshops at klontzconsulting.com. And hey, are you enjoying Taboo Science? Because I would really love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I know I ask that a lot, but it's important. Just a star rating and a couple lines of feedback would go a long way. Thanks in advance. The next episode, as always, will be out in two weeks. Stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs>